Hello, friends. Welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, here with, as always, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Coffee and Deer podcast is sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built on the mission to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. Today, we're going to be talking about a unique new service to connect hunters with landowners with Nick DeCastro. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Land Trust. He's also a big time outdoorsman. He recognized the need a few years ago and sought out some ways to address it. And I think you'll find this to be a very interesting conversation. This is also an Ask NDA Anything episode, and we have two really thoughtful questions to get to, so the doctor and I better be on our game today. And the B-Team report. Oh, the B-Team report. (laughs) (laughs) I I may have the ultimate of all B-Team reports, and unfortunately, it's my report. Some of it wasn't my fault, but some of it was, and I'll explain here in a second. But before we do that... Let's say hello to a man that has found every outdoors podcast ever created in North America. Here he is, folks, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. This is the first time that I knew what your introduction was going to be, or I could guess, I should say. Really? Your introduction, yes. Uh, I am off my game, man. No, no, no. I just, there, there was writing on the wall when I sent you, or when I shared that podcast with you. Okay, so without naming any names... Yes. Because we know our, our podcast is awful, right? But we still fight through it. And for some reason, we have sponsors and people listen. And maybe it's just because they feel bad for us. But uh, without mentioning names, how would you describe the show that you just forwarded to me to listen to the other day? Oh, well, I mean, I, I hate... Let me, let me try and couch it in the sense of constructive criticism. Um, it, it was a show with the best intent to try and be an outdoorsy type of podcast. But in regards to the thought process as they were hosting and co-hosting, not much effort and thought went into that. It almost seemed like a, we kind of joke about ours being the, you know, grab a cup of coffee at a diner and sit and just talk about deer vibe. This was almost, I'm calling my friend while I'm sitting on the commode you know, type of, type of Wait, conversation. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is that when you call me typically? I mean, I, I don't know if I want to know the answer to this. Well, no, the only reason I'm saying this is because I've never called him when I've been sitting on the commode. So I guess that that's, that I was trying to, trying to be, it's just, um, it's a shame that not a lot of thought and effort and courtesy and couth went into the conversation. I guess is a better, that's why I guess I'm trying to go there is that, you know, most human beings probably wouldn't call someone when they're on the commode. And um, that's, (laughs) that's where I went to, to try and provide you an analogy (laughs) of, of not, not being considerate of the, of the listener or the person on the other side. How about that? Yeah. I mean, we went to a, to a strange place, but yeah, it was very rambling and um, you know, but, you know, public service message, whenever someone hands you their phone and they say, hey, can you snap a couple pictures for me? I'm just saying, you don't know necessarily where the phone's been. So I'll leave you with that wonderful thought as you listen to the the Coffee and Deer show today, which is, you know, full of all kinds of very helpful information to help you get on with your day. So at any rate, yes, the, 
the wonderful thing about the podcast world, social media, and, and all of those things is that everybody has a voice and a platform if they want. And that is also the unfortunate part of all those places as well, is that everybody has a platform and a voice. And so I thought that was one of the more interesting ones that you sent me. So anyway, yeah, we are certainly not perfect and we don't mean to pick on anybody. And uh, there's plenty that we can be picked on here, but for here. But Mike, the reason I said that with the introduction is the doctor there would routinely send me a podcast I'd never heard of and say, hey, listen to this. And then I listen to it and some are some are pretty good and some are some are not so. So anyway. Yeah, and that just kind of was a reflection of the mood that I was in and the reason you know that I sent it is because of your history and we'll just leave it at that. All right. Well, Hey, we appreciate it. All right. Hey, ask NDA anything questions and let's get to these uh, before we get into the interview. And these are, these are really thoughtful ones, Mike. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into them. We got one that actually brings turkeys into the mix here. And so let's go ahead and start with that one. I thought this was good. This comes from uh, Chris who is in, do I want to say it was Kansas? Sorry, Chris, I apologize. Uh, Virginia, I'm sorry, Kansas, Virginia. I mean, only two thirds of the way across the country. I was close there. Uh, Chris sent this a while back. So, uh, and he says, I know this is a deer organization, but we all have turkeys on the mind right now. So I hope you'll indulge me. I live in Southern Virginia. Uh, at what point this spring do I need to tell my rancher to park the bush, the brush hog, uh, so as to not destroy turkey nests? We have several fields and fescue for cows. Not great nesting habitat for sure, but with the decline in turkeys, I don't want to lose even one nest if I can help it. Uh, recent studies show that 12% of nests are lost to mowing. I did not know that. That's a scary high number, so more than 1 in 10 nests. Said so similar question though, as it relates to fawns, when to not brush hogs so you don't mow over a small fawn, which, yeah, that does happen, unfortunately. And so, Chris, this is not a turkey show, but the, the doctor and I do fancy ourselves as somewhat knowledgeable uh, in turkeys. And so uh, I'll give a quick answer and we'll let the doctor chime in here. But generally speaking, you're, you're in Virginia, so your turkeys are you know, actively breeding right now and going to nests here right about as you're hearing this podcast, end of April. And so understanding the incubation time that it takes for eggs uh, to hatch of around a month or so, I think the, the best course of action to give yourself plenty of room is to put the machinery away if you can until at least until at least uh, mid-June, okay? That gives you plenty of time. That gives you plenty of nesting time, uh, plenty of laying time and chance for the poults to get up and be able to move around. And so that would be my answer for turkeys and even, even deer the same way. Now, the nice thing about deer is that they can be up and mobile rather quickly after being born within a day or two, really. It's, it's really remarkable, whereas turkeys, you know, the hen's got to take the time to lay that nest, 10 to 12 eggs, however many she ends up laying, and then has to sit on the nest. And so it's for a very long time, four to six weeks that that time or that that bird or the, excuse me, the hen in the nest is vulnerable. And then, of course, once the chicks hatch, they can be mobile pretty quickly as well. So that's my answer to give yourself plenty of time. Mike, what do you want to add to that? Anything? Um, I really can't. I think you covered it very well. Uh, yeah, mid-June third week in June at the latest, but again, the further you go south, the earlier that's going to be. The only other thing would be the fluke of if a hen loses a nest early, she might relay and that puts her back a week or two. So, but those are just fluke situations. And um, I guess you can't revolve your whole life around that. But if you're in an area of low turkey population, maybe saving, 
you know, you know, wait until the first of July would probably cover that by nearly a hundred percent. And um, that's all I can really add. Yeah, we can't save them all, and I think that's a good point about re-nesting situations. A hen loses her nest early, re-nest, that takes some time. But, uh, yeah, we can't protect every situation, but I appreciate that question as you're trying to do the best you can. Yeah, we don't want to lose any, of course. All right, so great question. Thank you. The next question comes from John, and John is Wisconsin. And so John asks, uh, it's a pretty long and detailed question about CWD. And coming from Wisconsin, he's all too familiar with it. I'll read a couple lines and just sort of try to summarize for you. He says, I'm interested in your thoughts on chronic wasting disease and how it's testing its testing prevalence, uh, negative media coverage, and department management is affecting hunter uh, participation. Uh, he cites some t statistics in some areas of Wisconsin where there has been some decline in, in hunter license buying. And I'm sure that some of that has to do with having high prevalence of CWD in those areas. I mean, there's some people that if they shoot a buck, it's a better than 50-50 chance that it's gonna have CWD and that's scary. And I could see that that would cause people to hang up uh, the bow or the rifle and, and quit hunting. Um, although I would say nationwide, we haven't really seen a decrease that is directly attributed, uh, attributed to CWD. The decreases are just following that typical trend that we've seen uh, over the last couple of decades, frankly, we had a we had a bump with COVID, a bump forward, but it's just sort of a a slow and steady decline of hunters. That's a whole other subject, so not directly attributable to CWD. And then uh, John shares some frustrations of uh, you know uh, targeted removals and what are we really accomplishing, and it's just some frustration. And I totally understand where that's coming from because John, we're frustrated about it as well, and we wish we didn't have to talk about it. Uh, I guess my general answer would be. Uh, from our perspective, from the National Deer Association, number one, we are always led 100% by science. And so the science says, yeah, CWD is out there. It's bad. There are ways that it spreads. And because of that, we feel strongly that we need to try to stay the course on the things that show promise of working to slow the spread. We're not naive to, to, and to the point of saying we're going to stop it tomorrow or these things are going to stop CWD. But we do believe that while we try to learn more, while research catches up, that we should do whatever we can to try to slow the spread. One of the simplest things is don't be moving uh, dead deer, whole, you know, whole carcasses from, from one place to another if you can help it. Don't follow the rules. Don't shoot a deer in Wisconsin and drive it across to Ohio, for example. Follow the rules. Understand what parts you can take. Um, you know, just, just things like that. Yeah, we can get into a whole other discussion about uh, targeted removal and what the impact of that really is that's being studied very closely and that's obviously going to upset hunters right they don't want to see deer being shot for the sake of wondering if cwd is in a certain area and so we 100 percent get that we're frustrated by it as well we wish we didn't have to deal with it but i can tell you we are always staying on top of the science being aware of the science and we will adjust accordingly based on what the science tells us if the science come back comes back and says you know what uh, we should have never really been worried about carcass movement, then we're going to say that too, if the peer-reviewed science tells us that. Now, I'm just throwing that out as an example. I'm not giving you any kind of a hints of things to come, but that's that would be my best answer, John. And I know your frustration speaks to the frustration of a lot of hunters across North America, and we wish we didn't have to deal with it. But thank you very much for bringing it up because a lot of people do not do that. So uh, I think we need to stay the course as long as the science tells us to, but we need to keep doing the science to learn more. Anything from you, Mike? I don't have much because uh, I, I try not to speak when I don't have 
as much information about a topic and obviously you're between the two of us you're the one that's more hip deep in this than i am but what i will say is more more speaking from the the consumer of uh of the deer side of this and not so much the movers and shakers that are in the mix is that all you i mean what makes me feel okay is that i guess just trying to do my part you know following the rules following the regulations and trying to do my part in trusting the fact that there's people out there that are smarter than me that are more dedicated in doing this and are trying to do the best for deer and for the public in general that um, whether they watch deer take photographs or harvest them uh, they're just trying to do the best they can so um, if um, John wants to, he can always go and listen to that podcast that we had with Doug Duran because Doug is um, kind of like in between. He's, I think I would classify him as like one step above the consumer side of this, but he's really trying to get involved and make steps to help his area the best that he can. So um, maybe listening to his insight and how he's coping with that uh, might be something that um, John can pull some information from and and kind of help center where he, you know, how he's thinking about it and where he's at with this process. Okay. Yeah. And he, he mentioned things here too about, uh, because prions can be taken up in plants and why don't we have things like hay embargoes, you know, shipping hay to different places or you could be moving CWD around. I get it. I mean, a lot of that too, frankly, John is politics. <laughs> you know, unfortunately we don't get to deal with these diseases just you know, with sort of rolling with the iron fist, right? So there's that part of it. It's just very complicated and very unfortunate. And uh, yeah, I would just hope that hunters will hang in there and do the best they can, do what's asked of them, follow the rules. Well, hopefully uh, someday we'll have a way, a better way to deal with this. So thank you, John, for the question. And uh, as far as the, the hat goes this time, John, I'm going to give it to you because you really uh, took the time to write this out, put a lot of thought into it. You have some good questions and you tackled CWD, which is uh, a difficult one. So uh, we'll get you a hat, send us your address. All right, Mike, let's go ahead and jump into the interview. Uh, I think it was a really good conversation uh, with Nick on an important topic, hunter access and how land trust is helping uh, make that a reality for both hunters and landowners. So let's go ahead and get to the interview with Nick DeCastro. It's our pleasure to welcome Nick DeCastro to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Nick is the founder and CEO of Land Trust, uh, described as the Recreation Access Network. Land Trust exists to strengthen the relationship between private landowners and the outdoor recreation community, something that this audience should certainly be interested in hearing. He's a passionate outdoorsman as well, and he's been on a number of podcasts spreading the word about the great work of land trusts. So Nick, thank you so much for being on. We appreciate it. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, we, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, <clears throat> it's good to meet you this morning. So yeah, I, uh, I'm the founder and CEO of land trust. As you mentioned, uh, I've been a lifelong hunter and fisherman. Um, I grew up in Southern California, which I know sounds almost like a oxymoron from the statement I just made, but uh yeah, I grew up spearfishing, hunting, uh, hunting quail in the deserts in California and fishing and just being outdoors pretty much my whole life. So um, I then uh, moved to the East Coast, 
got into kind of the enterprise sales. I worked in early stage technology startups. Um, I worked kind of in the marketing and advertising world before um, moving out to Bozeman. I moved out here in uh, 2016, right near the end of the year. And, you know, I just wanted to be out here. If you guys have been up here, I know uh, a lot of people love Montana for the same reasons. Uh, beautiful place to, and a lot of hunting and fishing opportunity. So coming out here and then was kind of confronted with the idea that now is land trust. Yes, you've kind of lived everywhere in the country then, from the West Coast to the East Coast and now in Bozeman. And yeah, I love Bozeman. I've been there. Actually, I was just there at the end of last year and I'll be back out there in June. But Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Come so what's been up. your, yeah, I would like to. What's been your favorite? Um, well, here I think is my favorite. Um, where I grew up is a beautiful place. Unfortunately, they've overdeveloped it to an incredible amount. So it's a very different place than when I grew up there. But Bozeman and, and Montana is, is, a, is a really great place for sure. Yeah, definitely pretty hard to beat. A beautiful place to visit. Certainly looking forward to getting back out there. And California, incidentally, gets a bad rap. But I know so many big time outdoors enthusiasts from California. People love yep. to hunt and fish there in that state. So it's not just San Francisco or San Diego or That's right. Yeah, or LA. But uh, yep. anyway, well, great. Yeah, you've certainly seen a lot of the world and I'm, you've accumulated lots of ideas and the one you're currently working on is a darn good one. So let's jump right into it. So what drove you to create Land Trust? <clears throat> yeah, it's a good question. So um, I moved up here, as I mentioned, in the end of 2016, and, uh, you know, I wanted to hunt and fish a bunch more. And as a lot of your folks probably know, Montana's got a pretty healthy amount of public land. It's a really large state, uh, a lot of public lands, which is amazing. Um, but I did find myself wanting to get out onto private, uh, private ground, uh, for obvious reasons, right? Mainly mine was lower pressure. So, uh, even in the time that I've lived here, the amount of hunting pressure has gone up significantly. And I know I'm a, I'm a newbie out here. So, um, you know, I was confronted with this idea, which is, you know, we've got public land, which is awesome, but how do I get out onto private land? And of course, door knocking has been something that has been around since the beginning of time, basically. Um, and, you know, I went and did that and it's, it's, it's not too fruitful. Generally speaking, you can get lucky. Um, and I think the other side of that too, if you put yourself in the landowner's shoes, which I certainly didn't before I started this company, uh, especially, you know, working farms and ranches, it's a disruption and it's something that happens multiple times a day and stops the day of work for them. So it's not really an ideal scenario for either party. Um, I, look, I made my living in sales, so I'm not afraid to talk to people by any means, but it's still something that's, you know, going up and knocking on a stranger's door is, uh, can be uncomfortable. So you know, I had also been pretty early on uh, in the platform of Airbnb in New York City when I lived there. Mm -hmm. um, 2011 or so, I, I started being a host on Airbnb's platform. And I really got to see firsthand kind of the power of a sharing economy platform. And, you know, so when I when this, you know, model presented itself, it was kind of a, oh, I've seen this before with a different application. The landowner has this amazing resource that sits underneath their feet every day. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of folks like myself and others, you know, whether it's hunting, fishing, foraging, RVs, whatever it might be, these people have passions in the outdoors. And, you know, we, we're constantly looking for new places to do it. And especially when you talk about hunting, um, 
a place that's you have exclusive access to has a lot of value and you know um farms and ranches offer an immense amount of amazing ground and i wanted to find a way to make you know making that quote transaction much simpler for both sides yeah i think that's a big part of it to make it simple even from a landowner perspective like you said they're busy yeah they're busy doing their landowner thing and so if you can help make that transaction easier all the better and mike i'm looking at you here as we're talking about this because you and i have talked a lot about our dislike for knocking on doors, you know, even though we're professional people and deal with people all the time, right? there's just something about knocking on someone's door that's uncomfortable. Well, and it's, you know, it's kind of one of those things too, where um, you're both dancing around, like you're knocking on a stranger's door. It, it, it's almost like you, you don't just come out and say, Hey, I'd like to go out and, you know, give me access to your ground. And so there's a lot of pleasantries, but it seems almost disingenuous. Like you're dancing around this idea, like, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here for something that, you know, I want access to this thing. And so, you know, it just, yeah, something feels off about that relationship. And, and, and of course, we're speaking of generalities. There are people who make great connections and have, you know, had lifelong friends or, or, or access from door knocking in a relationship that's built from there. And that's amazing. But I think generally speaking, it's this weird thing where like, I want this thing that you have and I'm trying to be nice to get it. <laughs> right exactly I, don't know. I mean that's basically what it is right yeah well it's interesting because you mentioned your airbnb experience which i think certainly yeah. would have helped you here so tell us take us through the mechanics of it okay i'm interested sure. in looking for a place to hunt pronghorn for example how does it work sure. for both sides yeah so uh I'll, I'll put out kind of the how we position ourselves to both sides here so uh, you know, um, like you said, the Airbnb model, which is essentially what we, when we say that we're saying a two-sided marketplace. So Airbnb is one, VRBO is one. I don't know if you guys have heard of one called Turo, where you can, you know, it's a car sharing marketplace. If you have a vehicle you don't use, you can rent it out too. These are all part of the sharing economy. I own an asset and I don't use hundred percent of it all the time. So I'm willing to, you know, share it with other people through a marketplace. So for hunters looking for new opportunities on private land, Landtrust.com makes it easy to directly connect with landowners and book hunts. Um, you know, unlike expensive annual leases, guided hunts and door knocking, we make it easy to hunt private. That's how we talk about ourselves to the to the hunter side. And from a landowner perspective, and I'll get into the mechanics here too, we, we kind of position ourselves like this. For farmers and ranchers looking for practical ways to add income to their operations, Landtrust makes... Uh, connecting landowners with respectful sportsmen looking to pay for access to their land. So unlike government programs, leases, and outfitters, Landtrust is a partner that helps build a valuable new income from sportsmen while keeping landowners in full control. And I think, you know, these two aspects on both sides, there's a spectrum of access and, you know, everything from federal public lands, which is free for anyone pretty much any time to do almost anything, to, you know, basically what we facilitate, which is controlled public access where you pay the landowner for that opportunity. So from a mechanics perspective, you know, for any of the sportsmen out there listening, it does look and feel a lot like an Airbnb, a VRBO, any of these other marketplaces that, you know, have um, have come to market. So you can come on to Land Trust. You mentioned, Nick, a, a pronghorn hunt. Um, you can come in and search on landtrust.com from the homepage for, you know, antelope hunting in Montana. And so that search result will then list all these different packages on different properties across 
across Montana, for instance. And you can go in and look, and some of these uh, packages include lodging. Lodging could mean anything from you're allowed to camp on our property or pull an RV, or we got a bunkhouse, or we have a you know nice house you can stay in. So, you know, lodging is a nice to have; it's not a need to have. And essentially what you're paying for with land trust is access to somebody's property. This is essentially a trespass fee. Um, and I think that's something where a lot of folks get tripped up um, and they think, oh, you know, you're paying for something else. No, you're just paying for access to someone's property to go do the thing, you know, that activity, whether it's hunting or fishing or something else. So um, we do a lot of things like these other large platforms do. We do ID verification of all the guests. So um, you know, from a landowner's perspective, safety and trust is a big deal. You're letting somebody off onto your land mm-hmm. that you haven't met before. So we do ID verification. Um, people are paying with credit cards up front. So a lot of the kind of modern trappings of a, of a, of a marketplace that you've seen in other places, we do all that just to build trust and safety into it. Yeah. Which is certainly got to be welcome to a landowner's ears. I can remember, back when I first started to try to hunt in Illinois because you couldn't find a deer in Pennsylvania that was older than 18 months. Uh, they had a, uh, the state had a program there called Access Illinois. And so you yep. submitted to it, you sent them your 20 bucks and they would send you a list of like five landowners all by mail, by the way, there was none of this nice wow. inter- yeah, online yeah. platform. Nobody knew anybody. And I remember distinctly two different years, just driving out there and meeting with a couple of these folks through that program, but boy, this sure sounds a lot better than that. <laughs> it, it, we, we've definitely streamlined things. And again, for both, for both parties, it is a much better experience. And I think the other important aspect that we talk about with landowners, as I mentioned, they're staying in full control is that everything starts as a request. So you can make an inquiry as a sportsman. If you see a couple of properties that you're interested in, you can inquire with them before you go to book and ask them some questions. So there's a lot of, you know, there's photos and, and descriptions and, you know, a lot about the properties um, on, on the land trust listings. But naturally, there's going to be questions. So you can actually, you know, send them questions and inquiries before you go to book and everything starts as a request. You can't just like instantly book something. And again, this goes to landowners staying kind of 100% in control. And so if they like you, often these guys will talk on the phone with you or whatever, then they accept your booking. All right. So next, I have a question and it's Mm -hmm. coming from the landowner side. You talked about making sure sure that you're protecting the landowners and we've all heard some horrifying Airbnb stories after people, you know, book the place, have some knockdown drag out party and just destroy the place. What type of penalty repercussion now again you grant you're vetting a lot of the hunters but i've you know i i'd be remiss if i didn't say that there are people that when they put down their almighty dollar they feel like they are entitled to make sure that they're having their best time possible how do you make sure that they are taking care of the landowner not you know running up their fields or not leaving trash and and just which would actually i think at the end of the day then hurt your business of course yeah Yeah. So we're, you know, everyone is in line. Uh, We are directly in line with our landowners. So our landowners are our business partners. Um, They don't, we don't charge them anything to be on the platform. We make a a percentage of essentially commission when bookings happen. So we sit on the same side of the table. Um, It's a good question. So marketplaces are really good at transparency and accountability generally. Of course, you know, at a scale that Airbnb is at, there have been some incidents um, that have occurred that are you know newsworthy, let's say. Uh, 
so I'll start off with saying we have had zero incidents on land trust, you know, knock on wood, of course, it's bound to happen eventually, law of large numbers. Um, but let me talk about kind of trust and safety from a land trust perspective. So as I mentioned, um, first and foremost, every guest who uses the platform agrees to our terms of service in that they indemnify and hold harmless our landowners. So they're already doing that. Um, in 34 ag producing states, um, the state is actually, everything we're talking about here is called agritourism essentially. So if you're doing hunting, fishing, horseback riding, all sorts of outdoor activities, but it's on a production agriculture place, which almost 100% of our properties are, it's considered agritourism. So in 34 states um, that are really big ag producing states, the state is actually limiting liability from the landowner at the state level. So as long as there's no gross negligence on the landowner's part, like the state's saying, hey, we'll, we'll hold, you know, hold you harmless essentially. Then we get into um, kind of our process too. So as I mentioned, ID verification. So we have your driver's license or passport um, on file, so to speak, through a third party. Um, you're paying with your credit card. Um, we do have property protection programs. So you know, if someone comes onto your place and breaks your gate or, or, or something like that and they don't pay, they are liable for that. But if for whatever reason they don't, uh, we'll, we'll write the check. Uh, I think it's up to $10,000 right now. And then we do personal um, uh, personal liability. So uh, again, if a guest comes out onto your place and hurts themselves, they step in a go for hole and break their leg or fall out of a tree stand or whatever, um, again, they're liable for it. But if for whatever reason they things go you know a different direction, they can come to us and we'll insure them up to ten thousand dollars in medical bills for that. And then we carry a million dollar general liability policy as well that backstops. And so. You know, that's kind of all the safety and insurance side. Now, from a behavior perspective, which is kind of what you're talking about, what we've seen is, one, uh, the landowner, because people can't just instantly book something, the landowners talk back and forth with these folks before they come out. So if they're a brand new sportsman on land trust, they don't have any ratings or anything or reviews yet from a, a landowner. So we do see a lot of times they'll get on a phone call and talk to people. And just as they would with, you know, someone knocking on their door, you feel somebody out. Right. So you're going to kind of see how they how they interact with you. And if there's any sort of red flags or you don't feel comfortable, landowners just decline the bookings. So, you know, there's that same kind of control there. Uh, just like these other platforms, after a trip happens, both parties rate each other. And so now we're starting to tie your behavior to your true identity, which is a first in the hunting and, you know, let's call it the hunting world. Uh, because you could have in the old days knocked on a door, been a really bad guest and then knocked on a neighbor's door and they would have no idea. So now we're tying your true identity to one, uh, how you behaved in, in the past and other landowners properties on land trust. And then we also have your credit card and your ID. So there's, there is a lot of checks and balances there. Again, we've had zero incidents where there was anything negative like that. We have 99% five-star reviews from landowners to their guests um, in the whole history of land trust as a company, which I think is a pretty outstanding um, improvement over the prior landowner hunter relationships, generally speaking. Well, no, and that's a great answer. And that's really what I was looking for, just because we've all had bad experiences out there. And we know, sure. unfortunately, there's always bad apples. And yep. it seems like the bad apples, <clears throat> excuse me, always make us, the rest of us look worse. And so I, I really like the fact that when someone's behavior is not upstanding, they at least get called out and there are some repercussions because 
it's just, just a, as a group of individuals, like you said, having access to these places is, is a privilege. And absolutely the fact that you can at least rate somebody who is behaving poorly and maybe they can, you know, pull their head out of that ostrich hole and realize that, Hey, I should be doing things differently in the future. You, you know, trying to make a better person, a better hunter, better representative is always right. a, a, a good thing. So I, I like the, I like the checks and balances you have installed. Yeah. And there's one other, there was another point there, Mike, that you had brought up, which is um, entitlement. So we have, sorry, I got my black labs barking in the background. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, you know what we've observed, and, and I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I'm trying to hone in on why, but we've observed the opposite of that. And look from an from an access perspective. Again, you can go from totally free federal public lands. Anyone can go out there and do anything they want anytime, pretty much. To you know, you could you could you could lease something annually, or you could pay an outfitter, or we're kind of a new you know short term way to do things. And I don't know if it's because of the model itself or who our landowners are. These are production agriculture landowners. So they live and work on these places. We have, if you go, and we're gonna start publishing a lot of the reviews that people leave in the platform just on social so people can see uh, kind of the experiences that are happening. But we have seen that people are overly um, thankful and grateful from the guest side to be invited out. These are where they, these are places where they live. It's not 80 acres of timber that's, you know, owned by a warehouse or something. This is where their families live for sometimes I think our oldest family is six generations. So I don't know, there's, I don't know if it's that or if it's some other piece, but what we have found is the guests that um, use land trust, the sportsmen who use land trust are like overly grateful for the opportunity to go out there. And it's not about, I need a 200 inch deer. We say this very frequently. If you need to get a big deer or a big elk or whatever, you should call an outfitter um, because that's what they do. Like that, that, if that's your goal and nothing else matters, like you really should hire a guide or an outfitter and go do that thing. Land trust is about a, a different experience. And, you know, on this point, we serve two, we see basically two types of trips, people who come to land trust who are really happy with what we do. One, we call a hunting vacation. So this is something we've all done a bunch of. It's, hey, I want to go somewhere new with a group of my friends or my family. And I want to have some new experiences and create lasting memories around hunting. And nowhere in that was there a 200-inch buck. Now, we do have properties that, you know, you could absolutely, that could happen. But the goal of that is something very different. It's to go and, and basically share commune with your friends or your family and, and just create memories. I don't know about you guys, but some of the most memorable hunting trips I've ever had, we didn't kill any animals. Um, you know, there's just some other phenomenal aspects of it. And so that's that experience piece. And then the other is just a local spot. So I now have, I have three daughters under the age of four. Uh, I have a company, like I have no time. Um, <laughs> so if I'm able to get a morning away, I just want to go somewhere where I know I'm the only person there. It hasn't, it doesn't even have anything to do with like, oh, there's, you know, there's a bunch of animals or big deer or anything like that. It's just to go and be by myself and not have to show up and like, oh, there's 60 trucks at the trailhead. Great. You know, that's not, I'm going out there to be away from everybody, not to be stressed by a bunch of people being there. And so those are the two real types of trips that we, we serve well. There's a lot of other motivations out there and I'm not saying they're good or bad, but we just really serve those kind of two. 
I didn't necessarily plan to go down this path, but a couple of things you've said are, are making me want to do this. So, um, you had mentioned if you want, if you're looking for the big deer, the big fish, whatever, call an outfitter. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And so as I was cruising through your site and looking at all the different opportunities, some things that stood out to me were there are places you can go fishing for like 25 bucks a day or even coyote mm-hmm. hunting, prairie dog hunting. And these are in some of the best, most beautiful landscapes in the country. So really, I mean, that is next to nothing to get out. And like you said, get a great experience. It's not about, right. you know, hunting the big deer or there are, I don't think there's any such thing as a, a trophy prairie dog, but <laughs> if you want to see a cool spot in the West and, and shoot some prairie dogs and help a landowner out for like 25 bucks, my goodness. I mean, that's, to me, that's no different. If you're going to, if you're going to rent a lodge somewhere that happens to have a lake and you take a fishing rod, you're not going there expecting to catch a state record Northern Pike. That's right. Uh, so it should be, I think the same mindset here, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, land trust, although we do focus a lot right now and have since the beginning, we focused on hunting as an activity. We, we are not a hunting company per se. So, you know, there's a lot of outdoor recreation activities that we facilitate and will facilitate as we continue to grow. We love hunting. Hunting is dear to us. Everyone in the office hunts. Obviously, it's a big, you know, it's the kind of the primary focus for us today. But I think you're right, Nick. It's there are opportunities to get outdoors through land trust on some incredibly beautiful places to do a bunch of different stuff. And yeah, it's not, you know, extremely expensive to do. Um, we have farmers and ranchers listing what we call farm and ranch experiences. So I know a rancher down the road is doing regenerative ranch tours through land trust. So you can book it with your friends, your family, or, you know, your fellow ranchers in different parts of the country. And you want to see how they do stuff. You can come do that. We we've done stuff like calving experiences or brandings or, you know, all sorts of stuff. So really what we look at is reconnecting the 99% of us, you know, at least me, I don't know if you guys are producers, but people who don't grow our food, fuel, and fiber with the public. So we've transacted, you know, like people selling sides of beef. We have a hunt, I think right now, a package (laughs) in Nebraska where they call it a meat hunt. So, uh, you know, you're getting a deer, a whitetail hunt, but either way you're leaving with a side of beef. And so, you know, you're, this is the kind of stuff that we want to see. It's, um, getting people outdoors, connecting them with the people who grow our food, which I think is extremely important. And everyone is winning out of this. You know, the landowner is generating some extra profitable income because producing commodities is a very tough business and very tough to make profitable. And you're getting to support them by going out and doing the thing that you love. Yeah, totally fair. And I think that's, that's the way the world should work. And so, and I I know we hear this, I'm sure you've heard it about people who complain about leasing in general, it's ruined hunting, it locks up land. And this is quite a bit different though. I think from a couple aspects, I mean, number one, someone that may not, or doesn't have the time to engage in a year long lease somewhere might probably have a week they could get away and it's going to be a lot less expensive and they still get what they want anyway. Likewise, a landowner may not want to lock up his or her land long-term for various reasons. So it gives them that flexibility. So you've kind of answered this throughout the the interview, but just uh, sort of directly, what do you say to the person that says, oh, it's just, all this is doing is taking away private land that, that I should have access to hunt. Hey friends, Nick Penizzato here to tell you about the Furminator by Renews Outdoor Equipment. 
When I convinced my wife to buy hunting land, I didn't tell her about this little list I was keeping of must-haves to help me manage it. Eventually she caught on and said if she'd have known about the add-ons, I probably wouldn't have land. Anyway, on the top of my list was the Ferminator, which I use for all my food plot work, including disking, seeding, and call to pack. I have no idea what I'd do without mine, and I love it. The all-in-one food plot tool comes in several sizes, ranging from a 4-foot ATV model, which I have, up to an 8-foot tractor model that also includes a rototiller. For more information, visit theferminator.com. The Ferminator, the best food plot implement on Earth. Uh, yes, we do hear a lot of this. So, um, yeah. So it's a, I think that last statement you said is a really interesting one. There, with these, with folks who have this perspective, there is this assumption that you had access to this private land before, which I think is kind of weird. Right. Right. I never have assumed I've had private access to somebody else's property. Now, in theory, you could go. It's almost like. They don't have access to it today, but they like the idea that they could for free if they ever met this person. And so I, I think that's just a weird premise to start on. Other people's property is their property and they get to choose what to do with it. And I also would like to say that uh, we have landowners today who will see $1 charges come through the platform. And we encourage this, by the way. That's a landowner having their friends, family, neighbors book through land trust. So they're covered and they're blacking uh -huh. out the dates on their calendar. And so they're still, they're hunting for free. They're just doing it in a way that's now protecting them from liability. So as you mentioned, with land trust, as opposed to traditional annual leases where you're selling a property right for a year or a couple of years at a time, this keeps the landers 100% in control. And so they can black out dates for their friends, their family, their neighbors, the local, you know, whatever, or use it themselves. And then they can sell the, you know, remaining opportunity out there to get out and, you know, use their property. So it is um, right-sizing a transaction because I certainly don't have the time or money to do annual leases. It would be a total waste of money for me. I go out hunted three days last year, just because of, again, three kids under the age of four and a business and whatnot. So honestly, <clears throat> we have heard from farmers, especially down in places like Kansas, who said we have leased in the past. And there are some pros to leases, by the way. One for a landowner, it's a nice big chunky change up front. Right. So that's good. It's guaranteed. Uh, so here's 20 grand for the year for your deer hunting. Okay. That's nice. That's a good check. Two, you're dealing with one person. So that's good. Um, now, we've heard a lot of stories of that one person bringing other people and that wasn't, you know, sanctioned or, what, or whatever <laughs> part of the contract. So those are pros. But the cons are you basically sold a property right away. And now you, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the local kids can't use that resource. And, you know, we've heard some stories of, you know, people who leased and then they have those people calling their, you know, farmhands and ranch hands and trying to get them to change how they farm or ranch. And they're like, guys, we're a, we're a production agriculture farm. Like we're not trying to grow deer. They happen to be here because we grow a lot of corn or whatever, but we're not changing our practices because you gave us 15 grand, you know, for a deer lease. And so there, there are tensions there. Um, but I do think land trusts model is more conducive to more access in the way landowners want to do it, because just like anything else, they can black stuff out for people. 
So what's in the future? What what's next for Land Trust? You've you've been at this a few years. One of the things I heard you say in another podcast that you were a guest on was that you know, you fully committed to this thing, which I think is important to make something go. You can't dip your toe in the water and be successful. So I think that's a big part of your success. So that means you're also, I'm sure, every day thinking about where do we go next? How do, how do we get bigger and better? So anything you want to share with us or or not? Sure. Yeah, of course. Yes, you definitely. Uh, I had founded a company once before and I tried to do it, um, you know, in conjunction with doing other things and it just doesn't work. Like you just got to burn the ships and pour yourself into something. So, uh, yes, we are fully committed to this. Um, yeah, I think what's next is, I mean, growing States. So we have about a million acres today on the platform. Um, and we really focused on, we're in, you know, we have presence in 30 something states, but really focused and like put our corporate efforts into Montana, Nebraska, and Kansas the last year, year and a half. Um, now we do have landers all over the place because, you know, it's a platform. So anyone can hear about us and sign up, but we're in the process of launching five or six more states right now. But I really want to grow towards you. You guys are, where are you based again? Well, we're actually virtual, so we're technically, our business is based out of uh, Georgia, but our entire team works uh, all across the country. But you two, where, Nick and Mike, where do you guys live? Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, I'm buddy. in Pennsylvania. And I'm in New Pennsylvania. York. New York, okay, yeah. I lived in the city for about six years. Um, yes, we want to grow towards you guys. Um, we want to keep growing through, you know, the, to the south and the southeast. Um, we think there's an immense amount of opportunities. If you look at like licensed hunters, most of them live, you know, South and Southeast. Uh, Montana is a phenomenal state. We love it here. Our population, I mean, Pennsylvania has more licensed hunters than we have citizens. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's like when you look at, when you look at those kind of numbers, like it's a great destination place for like where people want to go. But I mean, we want to grow into where the heart of the hunting U uh, S hunting culture is, which is the South and the Southeast. Um, so we're, we're doing that and we're also going to keep growing the activities that we really kind of, um, support. I think the RV space is a really big one. Um, if you guys have looked at that space of the last few years since COVID, it just exploded. People wanted to get outdoors, which I think is fantastic because it leads people to get into fishing or curious about these other activities. So, you know, uh, a lot of our landers would be happy to have someone come out and, you know, a lot of them have a pad or something you can put an RV and come out with your family and maybe fish the pond or whatever, just be by yourselves and not necessarily at a KOA that's packed with 300 other people. That could be fun for certain situations too. But um, I think there's a lot of these other experiences that we can help facilitate um, for our landowners with guests to drive revenue for them, but also to, as I mentioned earlier, reconnect the public with the people who produce our food, fuel, and fiber. And I think that is a really core passion for us. I love our landowners. I love our supply. These are the people who do the work that if they stop doing it, we don't eat food anymore. Um, so it's a pretty important thing. And I think that gets lost a lot, unfortunately, when we, in the hunting world, especially for whatever reason, we just like, we have this hobby that we love and it kind of takes over our, our site for everything else. And it's like, Hey, this is also using a resource that's being stewarded by these people often for generations and they're doing the most important work, which is growing food for us. So, you know, as we look forward, I think we're going to have more and more experiences that we facilitate around different activities on private land with these farmers and ranchers and other landowners. 
that brings kind of both parties together. Oh, I love that. Well, very well-rounded answer. You said a lot of great things there. And uh, obviously that's, that's important. So uh, I do want to mention that uh, you are land trust is a, a proud partner and supporter of the national deer association. We really appreciate that uh, because we're about helping people get access to access to places to hunt as well. And there are a lot of different avenues to do that. We already talked about knocking on doors. We talked about public land and we talked about leasing and we've talked about your service, which I think brings in a number of those different elements to make it great. So I wanted to make sure to thank you about that. And uh, just leave you with this. Is there anything that we didn't ask you today that you would like our audience to hear about your company and what you're doing? So there's two things, one on the partnership uh, aspect. <laughs> um, so for those out there who don't know, if you go to, you know, book a hunt on mantras.com, when you go to the checkout, you'll see a line item that's like an extra 10 bucks. So whatever the hunt breaks out to be $200, you'll see a $10 charge. And if it's a for a deer hunt, whether it's mule deer or whitetail, that money is getting passed through from us straight to NDA. Our thought process is, is regardless of where you're coming from in the world or, or what you're doing, if you're going to go, you know, use this resource and hunt deer, we should put a little money in the hat for the folks uh, on this podcast who are helping steward that resource. So, you know, hunting through land trust directly puts money into the pocket of uh, NDA if it's deer. We have the same thing with Turkey Federation. So when you put turkey on, on land trust, 10 bucks every, every hunt is going straight to those guys. We're still, you know, a little company, so we're not breaking your guys' bank accounts yet, I don't think. Um, but as we continue to grow, that will be a meaningful revenue source for you guys to continue the great work that you do. So I, I do want to call that out. Book and Hunts through Land Trust, every single hunt. If it's for deer, it's going to those guys. Um, and I think just, you know, the last piece here is if you're a new hunter, and I know you guys are doing quite a bit with facilitating new hunters, Man, public land can be pretty scary. Um, we've talked, I've, you know, I, I know some people, especially some, some ladies who in their 20s wanted to start hunting. And the idea of taking a deadly weapon out onto public property where other people are, are, have deadly weapons and they know they don't know what they're doing is a huge um, hurdle and barrier for them to really get matriculated into hunting. So we look at Lantris as a really interesting way to help facilitate new hunters to come into hunting in a safe and kind of modern feeling way. You know, if you're in your 20s or 30s and deciding through NDA or anyone else who's facilitating new hunter programs, if you could message with a landowner and book a place just like you've booked an Airbnb and you feel confident you're the only one who's going to be there and you've already talked to the landowners, to me, there's an immense value for new hunter recruitment in a platform like ours, because as I mentioned, public land is just kind of intimidating. Um, if you're brand new, if you know, we've all hunted for a long time, it's fine. Um, and you can have good, good experiences, but you really do need to know what you're doing. And so I, I do want to say if you're new to hunting or if you're looking at getting into hunting, land trust is a really great on-ramp for you to be able to do it in a way that makes you feel you know, safe and confident. And I would encourage folks to visit the Land Trust website. It's just landtrust.com. There's a lot of great information on there. You can browse around and see what type of opportunities are available. And also, if you're if you're a landowner, you're an agricultural producer in particular, and you have opportunities on your place, I mean, there are just a lot of different ways you can get peace of mind by working with Nick and his team at Land Trust. And so Nick, thank you so much for your partnership, for being on to answer these questions, and then introduce our audience to something that's probably new 
to a lot of them. We wish you the best of luck. I really appreciate you guys having me on and, uh, and thank you very much for partnering with us. I thought that was a great interview, Mike. I was aware, obviously, Landtrust is a partner of the NDA, which we very greatly support. And I was aware, but to hear Nick talk about the evolution of of the company and just some of the success stories. I mean, to me, I look at these examples and we, we're obviously focused on hunting primarily here, but even fishing, 25 bucks a day, some of these places you can go fish some premier water uh, you know, on someone's private land, it gives a few bucks to the landowner, gives you an opportunity to get out there, inexpensive hunting access opportunities. I, I just was really impressed by it. And I think it's just a, a really cool way of looking at marrying that relationship between landowners, hunters. You and I have talked about it's not fun knocking on doors, seeking permission. This makes that a lot easier. It does. I've never been a fan of knock on door permission uh, just because... I just I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I don't like it. But what one thing that we did mention that I think we kind of glossed over, and I'm not saying anything bad about that, but that really intrigued me were the 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 little fringe tangent of one day experiences where people were going to a cattle ranch and working or something along those lines where. I, my mind went to what a great way to maybe include your family into some of the things that you love to do. It might not be the hunting and fishing side. It might be the fact that whatever one of these places is offering, you can bring everybody and really introduce them to the outdoors as a nice first step or you know, even a, like maybe a first date with someone that might be from the city and you're from the country and you like to hunt and fish and be outside, but to take them and, and do one of these closer to earth experiences is, is really where mine went. My mind went to as being potentially an untapped resource or a thought process that people, more people might want to think about. Yeah, for sure. He made it, he made it clear that they're facilitating experiences really. Yes. And you're not, this isn't, if your goal is to go shoot 160 inch deer in Illinois on highly managed property, this probably isn't the service you're looking for, but for the majority of everybody else, uh, and he said, use an outfitter for that. They're not an outfitter. <laughs> and so I thought that this was, that this was very good. So thank you, Nick, for your time. Great to have you on the show. Appreciate your partnership. All right, Mike, it's that time. It's that time of the show. It's the B team report. Mike, do you have any idea what my B-team report's going to be today? Unfortunately, I do, and I'm almost sitting here wondering, should I just save my B-team report for another day because it's so minor that we should just turn the stage over to you and just let you own the B-team report today? Yeah, I don't know if I deserve a stage, but all right, I will say, maybe I'll tell this in a way, like you see some movies, they always show like, you know, these murder mysteries, they show the murder first and then they work backwards and uh, tell you how they got there to that point. That's how I'm going to tell this story. So working backwards, I can tell you that there is a loaner vehicle sitting in my driveway right now from just out of sight of D outside of DC. Okay. From a place called Passport Nissan. So thank you, Passport Nissan. Uh, you've, at least you've treated me well. 
Okay, so now let's work backwards. Why is there a loaner vehicle in my driveway? All right, well, Mike, I was heading down to uh, our friends, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. They have a awards dinner every year. It's a huge fundraiser for them. And it's right in the middle of DC. They have it in a beautiful venue. It's one of my favorite things to attend. You put on a nice suit, then you get down and you see a lot of your partners. You raise money for conservation. They have a nice dinner. They raffle off some cool stuff. Anyway, high level fundraiser. And uh, I decide this year, because I just got back from Reno, we got a nice conservation award from our friends at the Pope and Young Club. I just got back and I'm like, you know, I really don't want another overnight. I live close enough to DC. I'm gonna drive down, I'm gonna do the dinner and then I'm gonna drive back that evening, okay? I'm about, uh, yeah, there's no traffic three and a half hours from DC, okay, which if it's traffic E4, but not that bad. So I'm driving down to the event, everything's going well, I get to the point where I'm getting into the city, I look at my uh, clock and I realize, oh, this is perfect because I'm going to pull up to the venue about 15 minutes before the event starts. So this is perfect timing. I had just spoken to my wife, give her an update. I said, hey, just wanted to let you know I'm in town. I'll be pulling into the event. So you asked me to let you know when I get here, this is where I'm at. And I noticed it was I'm 1.1 mile from, from the venue. Well, it was literally less than a minute after I hung up the phone, all of a sudden I see all these flashing lights on my dashboard and the vehicle will not move faster than like two miles an hour. Now keep in mind, my truck is, I'm just going to tell you exactly what it is. You can decide if you uh, if you have one of these, if you love it, you hate it, whatever. But this is a Nissan Titan Pro 4X. It is a 2021 and it had 37,000 miles on it. And it literally just shuts down. I can do nothing. Now I am in the middle of DC in DC rush hour traffic, people trying to get out of town. And so luckily, I guess this is called limp mode. Uh, I was able to limp the truck I made a right and turned into a bus lane. That was that was just sort of lucky, right? That there was a bus lane I could move into. And so I pulled off and this is, by the way, this is right next to the Washington Monument. <laughs> so I'm like right in the touristy part of town. So there's people walking around me while my truck's disabled, taking pictures of the monument, looking at me, wondering what this idiot's doing, sitting there uh, blocking the bus lane. And so I'm scrambling. This is where the B team report comes in. I can't, I'm, it's not my fault that the truck broke down, but it's my fault that I wasn't more prepared. I'm scrambling. I have nothing. I have. I don't have my roadside assistance number. I don't have like my uh, dealer's number. I have nothing. So I'm scrambling, trying to find it. I call home like, hey, can you please get me a roadside assistance number? Uh, anyway, so my wife sends me the number. I call. They take you through the process. And uh, by the way, I'm sitting there in a full suit, right? I'm not in wearing something comfortable. I'm dressed, ready to walk into the event, and it's hot down there. And yes, I, I'm able to run my truck and run the air conditioning, but I'm it, I'm sweating, right? Roadside assistance, okay, yes, we can tow you, but it's going to be at least an hour. And I'm like, well, what do I do? Like, do I just sit here with the truck? Can I get out of the truck? And they're like, well, we advise you probably just stay there with it. Long story short, it takes two hours for a tow truck to get me. So I sat in my truck for two hours. I'm texting with Torn Miller, uh, who is in the event. And I'm like, listen, you're not going to believe this, but I'm actually stranded a mile away. There's nothing I can do. Uh, eventually, the two hours passes by. The tow truck does come. Originally, my truck was set to be towed for some reason to, the, to a repair shop on the military base. <laughs> and luckily, the tow truck driver points this out and says, I wouldn't have it towed there. 
And so I just said, let's tow it to the closest Nissan dealership, which turned out to be Passport Nissan, uh, just outside of DC. And, uh, but they towed it there, but I'm stranded, right? So I get, a, I take a, an Uber from my truck to the event. I get there just in time to have a cold dinner and I'm there for probably less than an hour. Mike's laughing, by the way, I can see him laughing his rear end off over there and, uh, get to see a few people. And then on top of that, I'm stranded. And then you don't want to be stranded and need a hotel in DC. All right. So the first place uh, I wanted to get a room is where Torin was staying because luckily he drove down. He's not that far from DC and he could be my ride home or to the dealership or whatever. And so they wanted like $700 for some room, some special room. It was the only one they had available. And I'm like, listen, I said, I can either just crash on his floor for free because he's allowed two people or you can give me this room at a reasonable rate. And they weren't budging. So anyway, I found a really great deal across town for $428. Yeah, that's a great deal in DC, right? So I took it. Then the next morning, because I don't have any kind, this is the B team part of it. I don't have any kind of a kit to get me by in this situation. I had to go to a Rite Aid. I, I walked to a Rite Aid. I picked up some basic supplies. That was $64. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. This is just an ugly mess. Tell them about the charger. Oh yeah. For, yeah for, I mean... I'm sorry for for interjecting, but the charger was the one that really knocked me, like just pushed me over at that point. Well, yeah, because I'm keeping the doctor appraised of the situation, right, as this is unfolding. And so the only charger I have in my truck is the one that connects right into my truck. And it's got the, uh, I guess, the lightning connection on the one end. Or no, a USB, the small USB on the one end. USB-C. Yeah, USB-C. And then I've got the, of course, the the Apple connection on the other end. Well, I go into this $428 hotel room and it's old. There's not even a USB port to plug in my charger. There's not even a pen and paper to scratch out some notes, right? So that I had to also buy a charger at the right edge so that I could charge my phone in the $428 hotel room. Anyway, I'm going to skip some steps, but it ends up being that Torin drives me over to this dealership and the guy is basically like, listen, we're still diagnosing what the problem is. It's probably going to be under warranty at least. And, but, but when it's under warranty, they want to have all the details and we have to get them all the details. And so I sat there until about 1230. Now I was already supposed to have been home the night before. And so I'm living off of like, uh, you know, some, some granola bars that I bought at the store and whatever and coffee at the dealership. Uh, they did at least assure me I could have a vehicle to drive home. So I was able to send Torin home. Thank you, Torin, if you're listening to this for hanging out with me for an extra couple hours and ruining your day. I apologize to you and your family. <laughs> uh, but anyway, at the end of the day, what happens is I leave my vehicle there. They don't have the part to fix it, but they are fixing it now. But I have to, I, I brought the loaner vehicle home and I have to drive all the way back down there just to pick my truck up in a couple of days. And so the moral of the story is have yourself a little emergency kit available, even if you think I'm just driving down and driving back, because this can happen to you. I was not prepared. And because of it, it cost a whole lot of money, a whole lot of time and frustration. And I still do not have my truck back, which by the way, Mike, I'm, I'm thinking trade in. I, I, this is on, it's in my mind now. I know that that thing could run for, for 100,000 more miles, no problem but it's in my mind now that something's going to go wrong. And I don't like the fact that it just shuts you down in the middle, middle of traffic and you can't do anything. So anyway, your thoughts. 
Well, like we talked about, it's different when you're by yourself, but I think it would have been even more magnified if your wife and your son were along with you. So I've, I already expressed my thoughts to is I, if I can't trust something, it just gnaws at me. And that's why I'm the way that I am with all of my hunting, fishing, and even my, my life in general, I prepare, you know, literally to the point of exhaustion, but that's how I can continue to function in regards to being confident moving forward that I know that you can't predict, predict and plan for everything, but I want to control as much as I can. And, and I, I get your whole point where you're like, I don't trust that vehicle now. I get it. The throttle body, by the way, was the part that went out on it. And I'd done some research, and I guess this isn't a terribly uncommon thing, but for 37,000 miles for this to happen to me is not acceptable. And it's a shame because I do, I really have enjoyed the truck to this point. And I've owned, by the way, I'm not one of these brand loyal people. And so people will be sending me messages. You should have got a Ford. You should have got a Chevy. You should have got, I get all that. <laughs> I've owned, and listen, folks, I've owned all of them throughout my life i have no brand loyalty i literally get in one i drive it and i say oh i like this one and that's what i buy all right so uh save the emails i do appreciate it but that's just how i roll with a vehicle so anyway uh i'm going to go pick this vehicle up and then decide what to do with it from there but listen have yourself a, a little bag with a toothbrush and some toothpaste some deodorant maybe an extra t-shirt uh extra pair of underwear and uh, don't be stuck like me wearing a suit for two days and having to go out and buy that stuff on the fly. So that's the B-team report for me. And uh, I don't know, you got the final word on this one, Mike. Um, I, will, I will allow you to drop the microphone. Okay. Well, we'll just do that. Ah, what a mess. All right, Mike, do you want to add yours or do you want to save it? No, no, no. I think uh, after that, let's... I think everybody's probably in the in the corner just you know hold you know in a fetal position rocking back and forth after that B team report. Yeah. And and by the way if someone's thinking well why didn't this why didn't you do something yourself? I am mechanically inclined. Okay? I've fixed lots of engines over the years and so on, but these newer vehicles like my dad said when I told him the story, he said it used to be you had the motor and the transmission and that's pretty much all you had. And he and he's kind of right. I mean obviously there's more to it, but these newer vehicles with all the sensors and the I mean, it could have been as simple as a fuse or something that went out that controlled the whole vehicle. So it's just way different nowadays, and it's not as easy as you roll up your sleeves, you climb under it, and you, you know, pull a MacGyver, and you're back on the road, or I would have tried it. All right, so that's the B-Team report. Hope you enjoyed it, and there might, hopefully there's not more to it, but we'll see. We'll see what happens here. <laughs> All right, Mike, hey, real quick, just quick updates. Got all the electric connected at camp. I did manage not to electrocute myself, so that's good. Uh, and the, the other thing I'll say is normally this time of year, I have the last few years anyway, I've been able to go turkey hunting with the governor in Delaware, John Carney. I didn't get to go this year uh, because I was in Reno getting the conservation award, and the governor did not get a turkey, so I will report that. I talked with Ron Hawes, friend of the show, the other day. He gave me the whole story on the turkey hunt. They did have one come in, but they weren't able to get it done. And so speaking of turkey season, Mike, we're by the time people listen to this, we'll just be a few days from the opener here in Pennsylvania. Right. I am coming down. So I'll be coming down to hunt. Um, you know, Nick has been gracious enough to send me pictures and tell me exactly where to go on his place for these two giant strutters that show up in front of his camera every day. So um, I'll be I'll be good to go for the first day, I'm pretty sure. 
but I'm actually joking here. Um, yeah, I'm giving Nick a hard time. He has a baseball tournament, so he cannot make make it out the first day. Well, there is a chance of a rain out, you know. So if there's a rain out, that yeah, that's true. You know, we can go and uh, go after those birds. But I'm I'm curious because I posted this on my social media. I th I actually think now turkeys are brilliant, but they are incredibly stupid at the same time, right? I've seen them do really stupid things. I, I do believe, Mike, that they saw that I posted this camera's in a, in one of my food plots and I have to put it on a fence post in order for it to, because there's no trees there. And I, I really think that they spotted this camera on the fence post, Mike, and are coming down and strutting in front of it. I mean, do you think I'm crazy or do you think that that's true? Um, turkeys are weird. I've seen them sit there and look at the reflection in a in a glass window for hours and then you know at a, at, a, at a time and so it's possible it's just um but one of those things that both great birds um but i was thinking after that statement this is the first time i think in what has it been five years since covid that you and i have not hunted on the first day together well like i said don't give up hope yet because the other thing that happens mike is if we get our our tournament schedule and let's say we don't play until like the 11 or 12 o'clock game. We still have time to go out and try to get that fly down. If they keep coming down to that food plot by those cameras, uh, we'll just set up there and wait for them. <laughs> and so um, keep it simple. Put well, the decoys out. You know, you know out. where I was going to go. Yeah, if you, if you can't hunt, you know where I'm going. I'm going. I'm climbing the mountain. Yes. But I'm going to get like super aggressive on that bird this year. Like I, I played, you know, tender with him last year and, you know, tender just didn't work. I'm going in kicking him right in the throat. Well, you know, if he's either going to fly off the roost into another valley or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fill my tag, but I mean, he just does not, he doesn't like to move very far. So I'm going to just be sitting right at the foot of his bed, just waiting. Well, that's a good spot too. And it's worth noting, I could see the spurs clearly on the ones that are on my trail camera there. And these are old, big birds. So probably the ones I missed last year, by the way, when I called two in together and I missed. That's a whole other B-team story for another time. So anyway, uh, what's going on in your neck of the woods, Mike? Anything new? Um, I've been doing some Russian olive autumn olive removal and spraying. So um, I've kept some up for years just as screens and now that I have other vegetation that's grown up, they have served their purpose. So now I'm actually going through the process of eliminating those. So that's what's been going on for me. Yeah, always something to do. And this truck ordeal for me has put me even further behind. And I just don't have enough time in the day. So something has to give. All right, folks. Hey, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple of things I want to remind you of, some NDA happenings. The first one, and this is important. Hopefully you're listening to this on Wednesday when it comes out, because if you're listening to this on Wednesday, the 26th, it is the last day of our online auction. And there is there are some awesome hunts on there and some other items. And you still have an opportunity until 7.30 p.m. Eastern time to get in on the auction. Uh, this is the best auction we've had in, in a number of years. So take advantage of that and uh, hopefully get yourself one of those items and support the National Deer Association at the same time. Uh, some articles, recent articles that we've had that are up on our website that I want to point out. Uh, one is uh, Deer Hunter Should Be Weed Farmer. Shane Matzenbacher, a recent guest here on the show, uh, penned that one. And he talks about how a really inexpensive way to provide great food for deer is to just let certain weeds grow out there and not spend all the money uh, that it takes to, to try to grow these pristine, perfectly clean food plots that we like to do. And so that's a great article by Shane. 
Uh, so check that out. Also, 10 practices of the most successful deer hunting mentors from Hank Forster. So if you're someone that's mentoring or want to mentor a new hunter, that's one, one to check out. And also a cool episode, the last episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast hosted by our Brian Grossman. Uh, can Blackberry save fawns? Okay, that's just sort of the headline, but there's some cool stuff in that episode. So if you get a chance, go listen to that. If you're unaware, the NDA does have two podcasts, this one, uh, the Coffee and Deer Show, and also Deer Season 365. So check that out as well. Also, I always like to remind folks to follow our social media because there are tons of other great content, articles, videos, and whatnot that we put out there on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and for the old people, Facebook. And I'm among the old people, as is the doctor. So with that, folks, thank you again for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good luck if you're out there turkey hunting, working food plots, whatever it is you're doing uh, these wonderful spring months. Hope you enjoy it. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.